five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Uh, David Bowie, Thursday's Child. It is Thursday, and um, believe it or not, I am Thursday's Child as well. That's a very strange video. I mean, I like the song. I think it's a good tune. Uh, it's really well produced, but it's a strange video. I mean, it starts off with you know Bowie and his supposed wife. There's some very interesting images in the video. First of all. He's wearing black. She's wearing black. Black being the color of Saturn. He's a Capricorn, so that all fits. And then I don't know if you noticed, but there's a a lamp um, in the background. Uh, so for those of you who are just listening on the podcast, I just played Thursday's Child by David Bowie, and there's a lamp in the background between the bedroom and the bathroom where the action, if you call it that, takes place. And the the lamp is, the base of the lamp is a satyr. There's little horns coming up from the, from the satyr's head. And what's interesting about that is that when I interviewed David Bowie, um, we talked a little bit about astrology and about him being a Capricorn. And he said that, the closer he got to his birthday every year, he would begin to feel these little nubs on his forehead begin to protrude. And then as his birthday sort of receded, the nubs would recede as well. I thought, well, that's pretty interesting, David. But in that video, there he's using the mirror as almost like a portal and an ability to kind of scry into a part of his life where he was, he was young again. Right. So in the video, if you, if you are listening to the podcast, it's him and his wife. It's not a mom. It's this woman. I don't know who she is. She's dressed in black. She's, you know, they're getting ready for bed. So it's like a ritual. Because when you, when you go to bed at night, it's a ritual. You do certain things before you go to bed, whatever they are. Brush your teeth, wash your face, take your gummy. That's part of the ritual. That's the, that's the communion of the nighttime ritual is the gummy. I'm a little ahead of myself, but it's part of it. Um, so it's a ritual space. But then the mirror becomes a portal to the ritual space. And he sees in the mirror a young version of himself who looks a lot like an alien version of Christian Bale, although it's not Christian Bale. 
And then he sees a younger version of his wife. And I think she might see it too, although it's not clear in the video. So there's this kind of back and forth between those two worlds. And then the younger version of Bowie in the mirror disappears. And it's the current day version of Bowie. And then he's in the mirror space with the younger version of his wife. And so he winds up kissing the younger version of his wife. And then he winds up coming out of the mirror. And the, the current version of his wife notices that he kissed the younger version of her because she's seeing the same thing too. Like they're having this moment in, through the mirror into their past. And she becomes slightly jealous of her younger self. So it's kind of a strange video. Um, and it ends in a very kind of melancholic tone or note. Tone and note, an anagram for one another. Um, but that's Bowie's midlife crisis record. I wouldn't call it great. There's some songs on there that are good. I actually like that song. And that was the video that they played me when I went to the headquarters for Virgin to interview David Bowie. So I saw, I'd already seen that video before. They'd sent me um, the DVD trailer with that video on it. So I'd already seen that. But they played it for me again. And I'd listened to the entire album. So they were priming me for the, for the interview. And I'm like, yeah, David Bowie's going through a midlife crisis. And that was, that was um, after Earthling. So that was 98. Then he's got his records in the 2000s that he, that he does. Like, I think reality is part of that, or the reality record. So anyway, little David Bowie on Thursday in Thursday's Child. Um, I was over on YouTube this morning doing a new thing. And I got into Astro Weather on YouTube. I'm going to be doing this Tuesday through Friday at 8 a.m. for 20 minutes. Uh, we had a nice little turnout this morning, uh, a robust chat. It was great. And uh, it's just me doing a synopsis of the weather, right? Like what's going on astrologically. And I also had a, a little feature on Lily Wachowski, formerly known as Andy Wachowski. Um, whose birthday it is today, the 28th of, uh, 29th of December. So if today is your birthday, happy birthday. It's also Jude Law and Mary Tyler Moore's birthday as well. All right, let's, um, let's take care of a little bit of business here. And we're going to give a shout out to our sponsor, of course, the amazing True Ham Science. And, you know, here we are at the end of the year, beginning of the new year. Uh, and I talked about this yesterday. And it's been a really great year working with Chris and getting people turned on to his products. Uh, and again, like clockwork, I hit that gummy last night. About 45 minutes before I wanted to fall asleep. Boom, boom, out go the lights. And of course, there are other products that are there. Um, there's a whole host and variety. Let's go to the website, which I love to do because it's such a cool website. And you can get a visual there. 
if you want to shop, you've got all kinds of options, CBD oil, the water soluble stuff, skincare, the always popular edibles. And by the way, I did have my moon dust today. Uh, topical salves, CBD for your pets. It's all here, full service, truehempscience.com. If you order $100 or more, you will get free product. All you got to do is go to truehempscience.com forward slash ref forward slash 23 and then type in 15MINS when you check out. Chris will know you're coming from this world and he'll give you free goodies. You spend $100, $150 or more and you get free shipping. So there you go. True Hemp Science, a little love for our sponsor. And speaking of love, let's get into Chantaria. Let's go to the website. Warner Wolf. Let's go to the video. All right, who do we have? There's my man. Miguel, greetings, Brother Michael, DJMC. There is Ryan. Morning, Ryan. JJ, back in the house. JJ, Jones ring is spectacular. I just have to say. Well, I'll send you a pic. So, I went all in on fashion and accessory for the good doctor this Christmas. And I'll, I'll send you a picture, JJ, but the entire thing, the entire package, ring included. I'd say it's pretty sensational. But then again, we're starting with really good ingredients. Okay, who else do we have? Um, Sony. I hope you had a happy birthday, Sony. I hope it was, was pleasurable and memorable, Miss Capricornius. Who else do we have? Queen Lisa. Hey, what's happening, Queen Lisa? Wendy says the beautiful one is here. Sony, the classy one. Wendy, the beauty. We got, we got beauty and class right here in Chattaria. I did just listen to the uh, total bonus. Good. We're going to make that a regular feature, 20 minutes. As long as I get my ass out of bed in time, uh, I can do this. I can do this. <laughs> uh, what's happening, Lynn? Did a YouTube. Yeah, Tom didn't know. Tom thought I was just going to go box cast to YouTube. No, it's just a straight YouTube deal. Box cast is, I wouldn't say it's for us. But it kind of is in some ways. Not that YouTube isn't for you either. It's just a different, it's a different space. Uh, let's see. Here we go. Who else do we have? Oh, the snow is so hard in the trees. Beth Berry, Double B. What's going on? Kelly B. We got bees. Bees back to back. There's Fran. She was there this morning. Morning, Fran. Yeah, Tom, Tom was a little, he was a little, you know. I kind of hit it with him early. He didn't know. So anyway, Lynn, just join us tomorrow, 8 a.m., 11th house. 
the replay is there as well. Oh, he's in the house here. Speaking of house, Houston is Houston is human. Houston is in the south. Like there's Texas and then there's Houston. When I think of Houston, I think of Houston, New Orleans, Gulfport. They're all kind of in that tropic zone. It's a very different climate. Even the people are different in Houston. I love people in Houston. Not that I don't love people in other parts of Texas. The people in Houston are friendly. They're kind. Um, they have that kind of Southern genteel about them. They actually wear suits when they go out to dinner. Kind of amazing. They still dress up in Houston. Let's see who else we have. Uh, SP Dimples. What's going on, SP? I think SP is a UK person. Hucklebuck411 is here. What's up, Huck? KK, double K, Catherine Kramer. K Pasa. Get it? Uh, let's see who else do we have. Da, 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 da. Didn't Bowie pass days after his birthday? That was also a well-timed exit. That's an interesting factoid and story. So it was on his birthday in the year that he passed. I was doing a live show. I was doing a blog talk radio at the time. So I wasn't doing any, any visuals. And I knew it was Bowie's birthday. So I decided to take a look at his chart, just as like an afterthought. And I looked at his chart and I said, holy shit. I think this guy's going to die. I didn't know when he was going to die, but I looked at his chart and I said, let's appreciate him while we can. Those were my words. Let's appreciate him while we can. And then on Sunday, it was announced that he had passed away. And my text messages were blowing up on my phone. It's like, you called it, you called it. Well, I didn't call the exact day, but based on his chart, I knew he was he was going out. He was trained. David Bowie was transitioning out. Now, there's a couple things that are weird about it. So, first of all, uh, if he did pass away, and for all intents and purposes, he did. Whether you believe he staged his own exit or not, in our mind, he's gone. So let's just go with the fact that he did have cancer because David Bowie was a, uh, a chain smoker, a huge chain smoker. He smoked Marlboro Lights and he smoked them for years. So I wouldn't doubt that he had cancer at all. Um, he could have theoretically had a medically assisted suicide to time it for that time. I mean, that would be very Bowie-esque in a lot of ways. So the rumor is that he actually passed away on his birthday and they waited till Sunday to announce it. It's quite possible. The other rumor is that he faked his death and that he showed up as um, Jack Blood a few days after. Possibly. 
But even if that's true, he's dead, right? Has he made any new records? No. Has he made a new movie? No. The same thing with Kennedy. A lot of people said Kennedy faked his death. Okay, well, if that's true, he still died. Like he still is gone. He was never president again. Um, he never was able to impact the world that theoretically in the way that he wanted to. You know, pick your poison here. He's gone, right? Removed. And it's the same with Bowie. He's gone. And um, I don't know if there's any more recordings lying around. I'm sure there are. The weirdest thing about the Bowie death beyond the, the Jack Blood thing was watching Amon on QVC about a month and a half or two months later, like hawking her product line. And I'm thinking, God, this is really weird. Like, why is Amon doing this? You know, this is like less than three months after her husband died. And she's out here on QVC trying to sell her clothes. This is weird. I don't know. Maybe that that's what their relationship was already about. I think it would be very hard to be in a relationship with David Bowie. I mean, there's part of him that was very domesticated. If he moved to New York, he didn't really, you know, want to be a part of the, the kind of the rock and roll glitterati glamour scene like he decided that he wanted to settle down in in interviews when he talks about his past and when he talks about his um very intense relation with cocaine and methamphetamine Bowie was not a heroin user he didn't like to be down he liked being up he liked being productive he liked being hyper aware so his drugs of choice for stimulants. And so he went through that very heavy cocaine period. Like I think it was really starting with like diamond dogs. And he went into that whole kind of plastic soul seeing he's like real thin. What show was he on? He was on, he was doing all the talk shows. He was doing dinosaur Dick Cavett. And in one show he keeps going, I mean, you can just tell him he was coked out of his head. And then that kind of moved into his phase where he did The Man Who Fell to Earth, stayed in character for The Man Who Fell to Earth, became the thin white duke, moved to L.A., um, did Station to Station, was practicing you know, Curly-esque Enochian circle magic, like that's all over that record station to station uh and he was he doesn't even remember making that record i mean that's how coked out he was and he's like i gotta get out of here i gotta get out of la like he just would he thought at that time he was the reincarnation of merlin he really thought that he stayed at the chateau marmont of course which is uh a super occult hangout he remembers, at least in his mind, opening the window and seeing a body fall past his... I mean, that's how far out Bowie was at that time. And he was, he was on a path to self-destruction. There's actually a video of him in a limo ride 
going through the streets of LA. It's a movie. I forget the name of the movie. It's a documentary. It's a really weird documentary. And you could just tell how incredibly coked out and paranoid he is. And he's like, that's it. I'm leaving LA. I'm going to go to Berlin. And I'm going to go there with Iggy Pop and we're going to kick our drug habits. Now, Iggy, Iggy's drug habit was different than David's. Iggy was a heroin user because Iggy was always up, right? He's an Aries. So he's always up. So for Iggy, heroin was a way for him to come down. And you know, his live shows were absolutely manic and wild. So he wanted to check out. And Bowie's, Bowie was more kind of reserved and English. So by doing coke, it allowed him to be more extroverted and come out of himself. Whereas Iggy was already an extrovert and heroin allowed him the opportunity to retreat into himself. So you had these two guys with these two drugs that were taking them in two separate directions and they both wanted to kick it. So they went to Berlin. What they didn't realize was that Berlin was the heroin capital of the continent at that time. So for David, kicking cocaine was easy. Well, what was easier than Iggy uh, doing, uh, trying to, you know, kick the, the horse habit, which he eventually did, thanks to David Bowie. David Bowie saved Iggy Pop's career, totally saved him. And he would call Iggy Jim, because that's his name, Jim Osterberg. And um, when he was there, they did two albums, um, Lust for Life and The Idiot. I love The Idiot. I think The Idiot's great. And then Bowie, of course, winds up doing, he starts the work on, um, I think it's Heroes, right? Does He starts to work with Heroes in Berlin. And there's the whole thing with the wall and the very Germanic sound uh, of kind of what was going on then with what they called Kraut Rock. Brian Eno's in the mix, right? And that's the beginning of the great Bowie trilogy, Heroes, um, Low, and ultimately Scary Monsters. That's the, that's the great trilogy right there. And then, then Lodger comes after that. I really like Lodger. Tony Visconti wound up remixing Lodger, made it sound better. It's a great record, actually. So those four records to me are in a lot of ways, Bowie's peak. All right, enough Bowie. Let's see where we go. Lyle Coyote in the house. Debisu is here. Love the new YT series. Good. Good. Hey, you'll be able to check in tomorrow. Uh, let's see who else do we have. Let's see who else. Kelly B says, I'll just say it's been a very strange Christmas time. Just like astrology predicted, literally one thing after another for the last week. Yeah, it's been a weird, weird time. Weird time, for sure. Love the new Astro weather. Good. We got good, 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 uh, good reviews. Is there somewhere we, we can read your interview with Bowie? Yes, it's actually on my website. So I'm robertphoenix.com. Let me see if I can find it. I'll put the link in here. I used to have a much better version of it. 
my website gets screwed up. Let's see, where do I go? How about this? And I used to have uh, all these really cool images that went along with it. All the images went away, kind of broke my heart. And can't even do like, oh, if I can search, how do I search in here? This is my own fucking website. You know, I may have to, I may have to do, I may have to redo this website. I'm thinking, here, let me do this. As much as it breaks my heart, I may have to redo the website. It's a Mercury retrograde. Good time to do it. Yeah. So here's the link. Um, the story's called In Bowie's Head. I had all these images and they're not there. It sucks. I'll put the link in here, JJ. Broken images. Ugh. Oh, well. No use complaining, right? If you're going to do something, do something about it. Here we go, right here. I gotta get our chat. Oh, this is funny. Here, let me put the link in. There we go. That should work. There you go, JJ. Right there. Put it in chat. All right. Let's get on with the show. On with the show. All right. So I have some insider info that I kind of kludged over Christmas. And I'm not going to tell you who said it. But it was quite interesting. So <clears throat> said person uh, works for one of the uh, largest and most prestigious alcohol manufacturers and distributors on the planet at very high level. We're talking global marketing. And over dinner, said person revealed to me that they're working with the World Health Organization. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Well, what are you what are you doing in conjunction with the World Health Organization? Well, said person told me that the World Health Organization wants to decrease the alcohol level in alcohol across the planet. So for instance, most alcohol is 80 proof, which means it's 40% alcohol. The who wants to bring that down. The who wants to probably go, mm, 
let's go 60% or 60 proof. Because they're concerned that alcohol is detrimental for people. Do you think they really give a shit about the effects of alcohol on people? I don't think so at all. What they want to do is they want to move beyond their role in either um, mandating, well, mandating would be the, the most extreme version, but suggesting um, That's what I'm looking for. What are you suggesting? Suggesting slash mandating things like vaccines, right? That's that's kind of where, you know, we we the who came into our consciousness. It's like now all of a sudden this global body is chiming in and beginning to create global policy on a national, well, international, national, and local level. All of a sudden, we see this guy, Tedros, who has a very checkered past. His relationship with Ethiopia and Eritrea, just really bad. Extremely corrupt. And of course, he's the perfect person to promote to become the, the head and the director of the Who. So that's really where, you know, they get their kind of global baptism. Well, of course, you know, this is the new standard and people need to be vaccinated once, twice. They need the booster. Oh, yeah, they're going to need to have proof of vaccination. We're going to need vaccine. I mean, they were the body that was at a global level driving COVID policy here in the United States. Of course, we had Tony Fauci and um, NIAB and the NIH and the CDC and all these, you know, suits. It was a Redfield, was the head of the CDC, and now we have Walensky. It's the same deal, right? But it started with the WHO and then the trickle down. Bill Gates, of course, having a very special, a special relationship with the WHO. But that's not where they want to stop. The WHO wants to be able to mandate global health policy across the board. So they're working assiduously to bring the content level of alcohol down. That's a power move. Now, they can convince themselves that it's in the best interest of people well, we're just helping people. It's for the greater good. That's a power move because you're getting into people with their vices, right? The things that they use to escape for better or worse. And I'm not, I'm not advocating it. I'm not glorifying it. I'm not promoting it. But that's where they want to hit people. They want to be able to go beyond this idea that they're merely a global medical body. They want to get into your recreational habits. They want to get into your diet. They want to get into your sleep cycle. The who wants to be able to dominate every single aspect of your 
so-called health life. I guarantee you, they want global standards across the board. So when this person told me that this is what they were doing or trying to do, it was a real eye-opener. I'm like, well, look at that shit, right? You know where they're going. And it'll start with the recreational stuff. It's kind of like what they did with the NBA, the NFL, to a lesser extent, Major League Baseball. They made them all woke. Like they went, they went wokey woke. They got people in their recreational spaces. So you can't really avert your gaze from this onslaught of mediation and control. They want to mediate your reality and control how you consume that reality. Because that's what men did. They're like, hey, fuck that, you know? I, don't, I, don't, I, I want to tune out for three hours. It, it was the, uh, the men's version of, well, I don't know, Chicago Hope or the Days of Our Lives or whatever. Whatever, you know, whatever uh, nighttime... TV show, usually around, you know, dramas in a hospital where there's uh, trauma, drama, love, heartbreak, affairs, all those things, right? That's where women usually go to escape. St. Elsewhere. You know those shows, right? It used to be soap operas during the day. So the NFL was kind of like that for men was like the soap opera for men this week in the NFL, right? But then once they got in and started to uh, mediate that environment, and I'll tell you when it happened. It happened when they started to do uh, the, uh, the cancer awareness stuff. Remember that? The Pink Ribbons, Susan G. Komen. I used to write about this when it happened. Breast Cancer Awareness Month. It's The Susan G. Komen Foundation is one of the biggest scams on the planet. I know I'm kind of going off road a little bit here. But once they were able to get into the NFL, they were able to use this, it's from October 1st, October 31st, right in the heart of the NFL season. Players would wear pink shoes. The quarterbacks would wear, or the receivers would wear pink gloves, right? Pink was highlighted all over the NFL. And it was a gateway to being woke. Because everybody relates to cancer. I mean, my God, I mean, cancer is who hasn't been touched by cancer in some ways. Your pet will get cancer. Your family member will get cancer. Maybe you have had cancer and you've beaten it, right? So cancer is ubiquitous. Who doesn't relate to cancer? And it gets into death and loss. And it's like, let's put it right here, spur in the NFL. and. Let's bring in pink, right? That's when it all started. 
But that's what the role of the WHO is now. They're, they're playing a global role where they want to be able to mandate not only your medical choices, but your recreational choices as well. Think it'll stop there? No. They'll go into food. They'll go into things like proteins. We're getting too much protein. We're too many cows. Uh, we recommend a plant-based diet. The plant-based diet is much better for the planet, right? So now we have this global body, which started with a medical response, just like Susan G. Komen. Oh, it's cancer. Everybody, everybody, everybody has been touched by cancer. And if you speak ill about this, well, how dare you? You're insulting the life of Susan G. Komen and millions of other men and women, or women and men, who have suffered from cancer. Remember how cancer was such a big deal? Oh, my God. It was, it was, it was nuts, right? I did a whole thing on cancer, and, um, beginning with the war on cancer, which, by the way, is connected to football. And it was um, this football player from Texas. What was his name? Freddie Joe. I always forget his last name. Freddie Joe Steinmark. And they did a movie about Freddie Joe Steinmark. And he was a, a player who played for the Texas Longhorns. Um, he was a really, really good player. He was undersized, um, but he got everything, like everything out of his life. This guy maxed out. He totally maxed out. And he wound up having cancer, I think, his senior year uh, when he played for the Longhorns. And that's when they wound up winning the national championship, the famous game with Jim Streeter. Uh, I think they played they played Penn State, I think. Um, pretty sure. James Street. James Street was a quarterback. And it was that game where Nixon came out and decided that he was going to declare war on cancer. So it was 1970. Prior to that, the cancer was in the background, but Nixon was a big football fan. I think he was in attendance. Um, at that game, Nixon being a Capricorn, of course. So that's when a lot of the cancer funding really started was after that game in 1970 and uh, really facilitated by the death of Freddie Steinmark. So it's kind of ironic that ultimately the Susan G. Komen Foundation would wind up in football with the NFL. But I, I crunched the numbers one time and the amount of money and research they put into cancer is huge. Huge. Phenomenally huge. And where does it go? What has it done? And, and then all of a sudden, COVID comes along, and we're not talking about cancer. Well, we are now. Now it's back and bigger than ever. Cancer. Nobody was talking about cancer. When COVID was it, right? Everything, heart disease, cancer, 
tuberculosis, none of that stuff existed for about a year and a half. Now they're all back with a vengeance. Bigger and better than ever before. Wonder why. Anyway, that's what happened, right? So the Susan G. Komen Foundation comes in, begins to pinkify the NFL, and sets everything up for what happens later. It's the idea, whether you like football or not, whether you think it's uh, a worthless pastime, it's one of the few things that allowed men to escape in terms of um, growing up. You know, we lost, you know, the whole rite of passage thing. So for young men playing football, it's also like a rite of passage. And then you had the CTE stuff that came in. And again, beginning to, you know, winnow out the numbers. And I remember when, when my own son was starting to play football, his, his mom didn't want him to play because of the CTE stuff. I think most of the CTE stuff is a scam. Can you get her playing football? Sure you can. It's part of it, right? It's part of it. But when I really looked into the CTE stuff, I started to look at CTE as it relates to steroids. And I managed to find that a large number of people who supposedly suffered from CTE were also very high steroid users. So did that exacerbate the CTE or did that exacerbate their emotional instability. Because once you get on steroids and then you get out of the league and you don't need the steroids anymore, boy, do you go through some shit. And I looked, I looked at all these players who Andre Waters, uh, Lyle Alzado, Mike Webster, they were all heavy steroid users. And they all had CTE to some degree or another. Um, Alzado had brain cancer. He was a huge steroid user. So even then we were sold a bill of goods, right? We're going to mandate and we're going to mediate your, not only your health and well-being, but we're going to get into your pastimes, um, these very tenuous rites of passage. That's what the who is doing or wants to do. And they'll get into sports, They'll get into sports. They will get in. Who will mandate sports? I guarantee you that. Once they've gotten their tentacles in, right, one little tentacle, all the rest will, will reach it. From, from alcohol consumption, nicotine consumption, um, the food you eat, the pastimes that we're involved in, that's the role that the who is positioning themselves to play. Now, to this person's credit, and they're not an ideologue in the same way that we are, theoretically. What they came back with was, well, instead of lowering the content, why don't we increase the quality? Good call. So let's stop selling shit liquor, crappy ass wines. Let's raise the quality. This is going to do two things. Number one, you raise the quality, you raise the price. If theoretically, if you want to libate, I'm not sure if that's a, an actual term, but if you want to libate, 
then you can libate and, and you libate with the idea that what you're spending means something. And the quality of your libation will be better because the quality of the distilled libation will be higher. So it was a good pushback, like, eh, let's just make, instead of making less, let's make better. I like that. I like that idea. Now, I don't really like a global entity coming in and mandating what we can or cannot do. But if we're going to get something better out of it, why not? Theoretically. I still don't like it. But these people are relentless. And they will not stop until they get what they want. But that's how they work, right? They go in. They will go in and they'll go into corporations. And they'll hit people, very specific people in corporations. So well, this is what we want to do. And they'll propose why it's a good thing. And then, you know, theoretically, the person gets a buzz off working with the World Health Organization. Oh, I'm, I'm really happy to be a part of this and throw down, right? Whether or not they realize that they're in the club, which this person does not, it's, it's the idea of being part of the club. Anyway, I just wanted to share that with you because it is a little bit of insider info. And that's where they want to take the whole thing. Every single aspect of your life, the amount of time you spend on a screen, everything, the who wants a piece of that from a global level. And they'll make a case for a global standard so that everybody is living by the same regimen whatever they deem to be theoretically healthy. All right. Um, let's get into the second topic of today, which is the man who sold the greatest lie. So yesterday we were having uh, we we're having lunch, and I started to talk about public relations. Actually, I started to talk about this uh, astrological webinar that I'm going to be a part of with uh, my an old friend uh, Emily Trinkhouse, who's running this webinar. It will be, I think first week of February. I'll have more news on that. Um, it'll be in the next newsletter so people know where to go and everything. And there'll be other people there. I think David's going to be there too. He told me he wanted to be a part of it. I just need to circle back with him. But one of the things that, and I remember when, when I first met Emily, she was a PR person, but with an intense interest in astrology. Well, she's a full-time astrologer now and like her group, her collective, is putting on this webinar, which is you people that are not uh, new agey and sort of dyed the wool, astrologically progressive. So that's why I'm there. Um, hopefully that's why, da well, if David shows up, of course that's why he'll be there. And a number of other people are gonna be there too. But when she was a PR person, she had told me, I don't think she has me yet, has uh, any problem with me sharing this, but she's, she's related kind of distantly to this guy named Ivy Lee. So I started to talk about 
the webinar, and then I started to talk about um, Ivy Lee. And if you don't know who Ivy Lee is, there were two people who really put their foot and fingerprints into modern public relations. And with one of them, were clearly marketing, although it could be argued that PR is a form of marketing. And it wouldn't be that hard of an argue, or you wouldn't, you wouldn't have to present a very strong case. So the person I'm talking about is Ivy Lee. And when Ivy Lee first started to come up as a PR person in the 1900, early 20th century, so like the 1910s, which is when he really comes on the scene, Edward Bernays is around. So he and Bernays were kind of competitors in the PR field. There was a third, I think there was a third entity, but him and Bernays really changed the landscape for both PR um, and marketing. And Bernays really forks off into the marketing world in a big way. Whereas Ivy Lee really focuses on the PR world, but again, it's all marketing and spin. So I wanted to kind of take a look at Ivy Lee a little bit today. If you're not familiar with him, he's an interesting character. Uh, and one of the founders on the, of the Council on Foreign Relations. So we see somebody here who is putting together both the sort of the, the, the written documents and textbook for globalism through PR, but he's also creating one of the focal points, a mainstay and a group that promotes globalism with the Council on Foreign Relations. So he's twofold, right? He's twofold. He's creating the materials that are still heavily in use to this day. But he's also creating or being a part of the creation of the mother organization that essentially makes a lot of these global-based decisions. So let's take a look at Ivy Lee. Oh, God. Now they've got this thing. Okay. Ivy Ledbetter Lee, born July 16th, 1877. He died on 11-9, 1934. Of course, 11-9 being the, uh, the day that the Bolshevik Revolution is successful, right? That is the day of the overthrow of the Romanovs. And 11-9 was the day that, that, uh, that Donald Trump was elected. And I've, I've talked about how the Trumps and the modern Romanovs. Anyway, let's stay with this. Um, he was an American publicity expert and founder of modern public relations. Lee is best known for his public relations work with the Rockefeller family. His first major client was the Pennsylvania Railroad, followed by numerous major railroads as the New York Central, the Baltimore and Ohio, and the Harriman Line, such as the Union Pacific. He established the Association of railroad executives, which included providing public relations services to the industry. Lee advised major industrial corporations, including 
steel, automobile, tobacco, meatpacking, and rubber, as well as public utilities, banks, and foreign governments. We're going to put a pin on the foreign government part. We'll come back to that. Lee pioneered the use of internal magazines to maintain employee morale, as well as management newsletters, stockholder reports, and news releases to the media. He did a great deal of pro bono work. He might have been a Mason. They do that shit, right? Pro bono work, um, which he knew was important to his own public image. And during World War I, he became pub the publicity director for the American Red Cross. So he's involved in good works. Now, he is a cancer, opposite sign of Capricorn. And what he's able to do is he's able to infuse cancerian values, whether they're uh, authentic or not. He's able to infuse cancerian values into the cold and heartless corporate heart. Lee was born near Cedartown, Georgia, the son of a Methodist minister. He also, his father comes out of this very weird, like borderline eugenicist background. James Wideman Lee, author of several books and a contributor to John L. Brandt's Anglo-Saxon Supremacy or Race Contributions to Civilization, who founded a prominent Atlanta family. Ivy Lee studied at Emory College and then graduated from Princeton. He worked as a newspaper reporter in Stringer. He was a journalist at the New York American, the New York Times, and the New York World. Lee got his first job in 1903 as a publicity manager, manager for Citizens Union. He authored the book, The Best Administration New York City Ever Had in 1903. He later took a job on the Democratic National Committee. Lee married Cornelia Bartlett Bigelow in 1901. They had three children. Alice Lee in 1902, James Whiteman Lee II in 1906, and Ivy Lee Jr. in 1909. Together with George Parker, he established the nation's third public relations firm, Parker and Lee in 1905. The news agency boosted a boasted of accuracy, authenticity, and interest. So authenticity is a theme that he winds up promoting. And we'll get back to that later. It made this partnership, after working together in the Democratic Party headquarters, handling publicity for Judge Alton Parker's unsuccessful presidential race against Theodore Roosevelt in 1904. So that's where they met each other. The Parker and Lee firm lasted less than four years, but the junior partner, Lee, was to become the, one of the most influential pioneers in public relations. He evolved his philosophy in 1906 into the Declaration of Principles, the first articulation of the concept of public relations. Practitioners have a public responsibility that extends beyond obligations to the client. In the same year after the 1906 Atlantic, Atlantic City train wreck, Lee issued what is often considered to be the first press release after persuading the company to disclose information to journalists before they could hear it elsewhere. He's the father of spin. He creates the first PR news release so that they can sculpt the news the way they want it versus the journalists snooping around and writing a much, much more damning critique of what happened. When Lee was hired full-time by the Pennsylvania Railroad in 1912, he was considered to be the first public relations person placed in an executive-level position. In fact, his archives revealed that he drafted one of the first job descriptions of a VP-level corporate public relations position. 
1919, he founded a public relations counseling office, Ivy League Associates. During World War I, Lee served as a publicity director and later as an assistant to the chairman of the American Red Cross. Remember, that's when they were selling what? The Spanish flu. So it would not surprise me if Lee was also very instrumental in the public relations effort to get people vaccinated for the Spanish flu, particularly soldiers. Through his sister, Laura, Lee is an uncle, or was an uncle, to novelist William S. Burroughs, and he died of a brain tumor in New York at the age of 57. Many historians credit Lee with being the originator of modern crisis communications. His principal competitor in the new public relations industry was, drumroll please, Edward Bernays, and he has been credited with influencing Pendleton Dudley to enter the then nascent field in 1914, he was to enter public relations on a much larger scale, but he was retained by John D. Rockefeller to represent his family in Standard Oil to burnish the family image after their bloody repression of the coal mining strike in Colorado known as the Ludlow Massacre. Lee warned the Rockefellers were losing public support due to having ordered the massacre of striking workers and their families, as well as the burning of their homes. He developed a strategy that Junior followed to repair it. So when you see, like for instance, when, when Obama went to um, the Gulf Coast or when he went to Flint, Michigan to drink the water, do you remember that? It comes right out of Ivy League. You'll see here. Let's see where are we. He developed a strategy that Junior followed to repair. It was necessary for Junior to overcome his shyness, go personally to Colorado to meet with the miners and their families, inspect the conditions of the homes and the factories, attend social events, and listen to the grievances, all the while being photographed for his press releases. This was novel advice and attracted widespread media attention which opened the way to wallpaper over the conflict and present a more humanized version of the wealthy Rockefellers. So he's adding this kind of cancerian feeling of care, right? To the overly Capricornian, capitalistic, corporatized model, which is go beat the fuck out of those miners and show them to never do this again. Couldn't do it. Lee guided public relations of Rockefellers and their corporate interests, including strong involvement in the construction of the Rockefeller Center. Even after he moved on to set up his own consulting firm, he was the person who brought the original unfunded plan for Metropolitan Opera's expansion to Junior's attention. And he convinced Junior to rename the center after the family against the latter's wishes. So Ivy Lee is not only recasting how people consume reality, he's also getting the Rockefellers to think about philanthropy. And he's doing it from a PR perspective. It's not that the Rockefellers really care about philanthropy, but they realize that in order for them to be more effective capitalists, they had to take on a more philanthropic face. 
Lee became an inaugural member of the Council on Foreign Relations in the U.S. when it was established in New York in 1921. In the early 1920s, he promoted friendly relations with Soviet Russia. So he actually wrote a book about this, which I'm going to share with you in a second. In 1926, Lee wrote a famous letter to the president of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce in which he presented a convincing argument for the need to normalize U.S.-Soviet political and economic relations. Well, why is that? Well, he's being paid, that's why. He was being paid by the bankers who started the fucking Bolshevik Revolution. He's on their payroll. So he has to make the Soviet Union look good. His supposed instruction to the son of the standard oil fortune was to echo public relations henceforth. Tell the truth, because sooner or later the public will find out anyway. And if the public doesn't like what you're doing, change your policies and bring them into line with what people want. The context of the quote was said to be apocryphal, being spread by Lee as self-promotion, making it both famous and infamous. Lee is considered to be the father of modern public relations campaign, went from 1913 to 1914, he successfully lobbied for a railroad rate increase from a reluctant federal government. Lee espoused a philosophy consistent with what he has sometimes, was sometimes been called the two-way street approach of public relations, in which PR consists of helping clients listen as well as communicate messages to their public. Lee advised foreign governments and provided public relations Counsel to Germany, to a German company, this, this is not well written, by the way, during the early days of the Nazi government, worked to put him in communication with the party leaders, possibly including Adolf Hitler. Shortly before his death in 1934, the U.S. Congress had been investigating his work on Germany on behalf of the company IG Farben. During his work with the Die Trust, Lee protested the group's use of Nazi propaganda and fascist messages, but in doing so, he may have been unaware that his advice is being transmitted directly to the Nazi government and that the Die Trust had quickly become nationalized under the regime. So essentially, he said, look, you, you better push back on this. And then, of course, the uh, Social Democrats were like, well, let's just nationalize everything, including them. Uh, Lee also worked for Bethlehem Steel Corporation, in which Capacity famously advised managers to list a number of their top priorities every day and work on tasks in order of their importance until daily time allows, not proceeding until a task is completed. For this suggestion, company head Charles M. Schwab later paid him $25,000, equivalent of $400,000 in 2016, saying it had been the most proper advice he'd ever received. Over his career, he was also the public relations advisor to George Westinghouse, Charles Lindbergh, John W. Davis, Otto Kahn, and Walter Chrysler. So the impact and influence of Ivy Lee cannot be understated because public relations and massaging the message has become an essential tool for um, rearranging the context of reality. So when you see somebody like Karine Jean-Pierre the Karen of the White House, she's doing PR. That's what she's doing. She's out there doing PR for the White House. None of that. She's just basically giving the White House spin on everything. And then when, of course, Peter Ducey 
and his colleagues begin to question the spin. She'll push back, she'll redirect. That's her job. She's a PR person. So the spokesperson for the White House, is that's nothing more than what they are. They're doing PR, public relations. She's not very good at it either, but we all know that. Now, Peppermint Patty was very good at it because Peppermint Patty was ideological and philosophical, and she was Sagittarius. And she could kind of get above the situation, whereas Jean-Pierre is a Leo, so she personalizes everything. How dare you? How dare you question me? Right? You could just see her, her utter contempt for the peons in the press corps. Whereas Peppermint Patty was a very good liar and she had a higher ideological calling. Jean-Pierre doesn't have that. For her, it's an identification with her egoic self because, well, she's a Leo, right? But that's what we see. Even modern news is a version of PR. You know, once the CIA and the alphabet agencies got a hold of this stuff, it was like, well, we can use it too. So the dissemination of modern news is really an outgrowth of the work of Ivy Lee, getting out in front of the story, putting the spin on the story, not giving people anything that's 100% factual. And it's only gotten worse. Now you can't even, and now with the advent of fake news and, and, um, what, what is it? The uh, not Glass Eagle. It's the other act with 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 Trump, and he didn't he didn't repeal it. it allows the CIA to um, basically propagandize whatever it is that they want domestically. It's not dead air. I'm actually looking at what is dead air. Smith Munt. They repealed it in 2013 under Obama. So essentially, the Smith Munt Act, which set out like the CIA could not use propaganda, disinformation, and misinformation nationally. Oh, they could take it to other countries, no problem. But nationally, no. Well, Obama repealed that. And what Trump should have done, day one, is he should have signed an executive order putting Smith Munt back into effect. He didn't do it. And that's why he had such a hard time with the alphabet agencies. That's why he had such a hard time with the Steele dossier. He should have fucking done it from day one. The Steele dossier was already cranked up before he got into office. That was already in motion. Once that had settled, and it theoretically did settle, or even before it settled, he just should have said, okay, Smith-Mudd Act, it's back on. But now he, he didn't do it. So good luck getting anything that is even remotely 
factual. You might, I mean, you can get somewhat factual pieces of evidence, but you're not going to get them from the mainstream media. So Ivy Lee created the model for modern spin and modern propaganda. Now, he did write a book, and I wanted to show you this book. Um, it's called Present Day Russia. And you can actually get this book. And what it is, is uh, a, let me paste this in there. Hold on. What it is, is it's a, uh, essentially a, a public relations piece for the fucking Bolsheviks. And at that time, I believe Lenin was still alive. Uh, Stalin. And I think there are free versions. Uh, and also, if you wanted to buy, ver uh, buy a version of it, it's out there. I'm just trying to find a good link to show you. Oh, this looks like an interesting book. Giving and Taking Orders. Giving and Taking Across Borders. Rockefeller Foundation in Russia, 1919, 1928. And Ivy Lee. This is a magazine called Minerva. This is really interesting. I'd like to read this. Let me go back to the book at hand, though. Mm -mm -mm -mm. There's all these books that are like this American Journal of International Law, on bibliobook.com. Let's see if I can just dial this up. I think it's on Amazon. I apologize. I'm just trying to find it because I went to the Amazon link yesterday and I wasn't really all that happy with it. Uh, how about this on eight books? I just want to give you like a thumbnail. Looks like you can get it from eight books. There's a second edition. I'll show it to you. Present-day Russia, second edition, 1928 revised, and with new chapters on marriage, women and children, and trade relations. So um, Ivy Lee was hired. He and a group of people went to Russia so that they could basically get, you know, the top-shelf tour. And, of course, they showed them how fucking great Russia was at the time. Didn't show people starving. Um, didn't show them the atrocities at all of the Bolshevik Revolution. So all this is just a glowing report about how great Russia is and taking it back to the U.S. and essentially taking it to uh, various chambers of commerce so that, you know, oh, they're not bad people. Go ahead and do business with them, right? 
And so he was hired by the same people who funded the revolution. And what's interesting is that when you look at him, he falls right into that Anthony Sutton category where he's doing PR work for IG Farben because the globalists are helping build up Germany. Post-war Germany, I mean, the, the, the ramp up is incredible. Just incredible how fast they went from being kind of stuck in the morass of post-World War I uh, in the Weimar Republic and just crushing, absolute crushing um, inflation, decadence. Hitler comes into power. He nationalizes everything. All these corporations are there, both American and English, by the way. It wasn't just American. There to help rebuild Germany. And of course, their war effort is really accelerated. And so Ivy Lee worked for IG Farben. He was doing PR for IG Farben. And IG Farben is a huge manufacturer. And it said, it's said that they manufactured Zyklon B nerve gas, quite possible. But that's who he was working for. But then he's working for the Russians too, right? So you can see like the globalist pattern. There is no right, good guy or bad guy. It's just who's going to pay and who's controlling um, the flow of the economy and the workforce. And one of the reasons why the Russian Revolution happened was because there were corporate interests in the United States that wanted to, to control the industry and commerce of Russia. And Anthony Sutton talked about that. That was one of the reasons why it happened. They didn't want Russia to develop its own kind of corporate commerce and industrialize into the 20th century. So of course there was a PR nightmare because the Bolsheviks were not, they weren't warm and fuzzy. They were bloodthirsty and they were liars and they went back on their word every step of the way, including the provisional government they set up. They just want to fucking kill everybody and took over, right? So they had to have a spin and Ivy Lee was brought in to spin that. But that's part of the global model. You can, you can see it there, both sides. Anyway, I just thought it was interesting. We're at Mercury Retrograde now. We're looking back. And I'll probably do more of that on the show over the next few weeks. Um, so, you know, revisiting one of the pioneers of modern spin. One of the avatars of modern spin, Ivy Lee. Humanizing the corporate interests of the Rockefellers and the Morgans and all the rest of them. All right. I think that's all we have for today. Uh, I'll be back on YouTube tomorrow at 8 a.m. I'm doing Astro Weather Tuesday through Friday. Uh, on the same channel, I'll have Russ Winter. And ironically enough, we'll be talking about the neocons who were instrumental, the ancestors of the neocons were instrumental in the Bolshevik Revolution. So we'll talk about them tomorrow. This is a big uh, topic that I know a lot about. Russ has done some deep diving, and hopefully we'll be able to come up with some new stuff as well. So join us there at 12 noon over on YouTube. Use your head in order to serve what's real, your heart to step what's possible. I'm Robert Phoenix. Take good care. Chataria, you're the best. Mods, thank you for all that you do, especially over on the YouTube side. And uh, bye for now.